You are not in Kansas anymore. You are on Pandora, ladies and gentlemen. Respect that fact every second of every day. I am Shani Luft, Professor of Religion and Associate Dean of General Education at the University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Thank you for listening to No Cure for Curiosity, my podcast for curious people. The website Box Office Mojo ranks the top five highest grossing films of all time. I know these lists should come with an asterisk because they aren't adjusted for inflation, but my point is, according to Box Office Mojo, the top five highest grossing films of all time are Avatar, Avengers Endgame, Titanic, Avatar The Way of Water, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. That means three of the top five highest grossing films, Titanic, Avatar 1 and 2, were written and directed by James Cameron. Because of the enormous success of Avatar The Way of Water, and because Titanic just celebrated 25 years since its original release, I was curious about James Cameron. So, I invited two colleagues of mine, Kevin Obsatz, a filmmaker, a festival programmer, and an assistant professor of media studies, and Carrie Elza, an associate professor of media studies who teaches courses on screenwriting, film and media analysis, history, and genre, to talk to me about James Cameron and to share our thoughts about Avatar The Way of Water. Speaking of which, if you're still planning on seeing Avatar and don't want anything spoiled, this episode won't be for you. But for everyone else, Kevin, Carey, and I had a fantastic conversation about why Cameron is so successful as an action director, what themes and ideas dominate his films, and what scenes from Avatar 2 made us roll our eyes the hardest. Spoiler alert, they involve a space whale. The conversation started when I was thinking about movies that have dominated mass culture. I think of the films in the Star Wars franchise, or Avengers. So Avatar, to me, is not a cinematic universe that has had the same kind of fan obsession. But there are $2.2 billion that disagree with me. So my first question was to Carrie Elza. I asked, how do you explain why Avatar The Way of Water has been such a phenomenal success? There are people who are very invested in this fictional universe, but it is not nearly the scale, you are correct. As, for instance, Star Wars fandom, right. MCU fandom, Star Trek fandom, Lord of the Rings, any of the big franchises, which we're all really familiar with, right, have much, much more invested fandoms. And they are, they're, it's just a richer universe. But people do like it. You know, people do like the characters. I will say, though, that I do have a kind of overarching theory as to why this movie made so much money and why the first one made so much money. And that is that it's a roller coaster. Hmm. You know, it's not much more sophisticated than that. It's an event. It's a spectacle. You go and you have a really visceral experience. And when you walk out of it, it's not as if you can remember every single one of the little dips and the little loops. To remember the way you felt, and you kind of want to experience it again, and it's something that you want to share with other people. So it's all about this kind of culture of spectacle, this kind of spectacle visceral experience. That's kind of my opening thought here. One of the things that's really interesting to me about this as as a phenomenon or as a work is that it is in some ways really easy to 
contrast with like the Star Wars universe or the Marvel universe. And and one thing that occurred to me as you were talking, Carrie, is that I feel like James Cameron is completely uninterested in lore. It doesn't lend itself to this kind of encyclopedic, like, okay, there's these seven clans and the seven clans each have a leader and like this structure. I think because it's James Cameron's property, um, he doesn't have to care about all that stuff. He's like, okay, I need a creature that does this because it needs to accomplish this one thing in this one scene and maybe look cool while that happens. I think one real strength of what he's doing here is that he doesn't he doesn't have to do any fan service because that's one thing that I noticed in in my classes these past couple of years is that people who are invested in those worlds spend a fair amount of their energy like arguing about like well which ship is faster and if right. this does this then why can't this do that and I think one one thing even in spite of the fact that it's you know a three plus hour movie. I really was feeling watching this, how much James Cameron is a believer in efficiency in his mm-hmm. own way and in um, instrumentality. He's always pushing forward to the next thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I feel like James Cameron knows the amount of information you need to have in the movie to enjoy the movie. He seems like he has a particular talent for that. I like this idea that he seems to be you know, outcome-oriented. yeah. And I, I mean, that idea of kind of filmmaking as problem solving, I think is, is really interesting. And I think that you're right, because although there is a Navi language, so that like whole language has been built out for the record, um, it's not quite the same thing as like the way that Tolkien built out languages. You know, it's more a means to an end. So I, I think that you're right. I think that's interesting. So another question I had for you both is, if you didn't know Cameron directed this movie and you hadn't seen Avatar, would you have recognized this as a James Cameron movie? Like, do you see James Cameron tropes? Where is his stamp, his identity, his choices as a director and writer on this film? First and foremost, uh, the the Titanic scenes where we're trying to escape the boat, the pockets of air where that are slowly filling up with water, the like the star-crossed love story we see in the original Avatar. You know, relationships between the father figures and and children. Kevin, there were more, weren't there? So I've said this to both of you already, but to anybody who's actually uh, listening to this podcast, check out Piranha 2. Uh, (laughs) The sequel to the hit Piranha movie. (laughs) Yeah, 1981. They have rebooted the Piranha series. Don't bother with any of the the after 2000 Piranhas. But um, but Piranha 2 is James Cameron's directorial debut. And where do you suppose we start in Piranha? Piranha 2, uh, circa 1981. First shot of the movie, two divers explore a shipwreck underwater. And then a minute or two later, ominously, one of them, I think, is bitten by something. I think the case could easily be made that that James Cameron only is interested in three or four things. And one of them is sinking ships and ships underwater. And uh, And it's always delightful to me to go back and see what what has gone all the way through from the very beginning, from when they're, you know, probably 30 years old, making their first cheap, cheap movie with uh, fake piranhas uh, biting people. Um, So, yeah, so I think James Cameron is absolutely, for the last couple decades, he's gotten to make the movies that he wants to make. And the fact that he's returned to the same scenes and the same kind of character types all throughout 
I don't know. It made me really happy. But it's so childhood related, right? And I'm thinking about this because my eight-year-old is really into shipwrecks right now. Hmm. This idea of frontiers, of being able to discover, of being able to find something new, find something that people haven't seen in a long time or, or, or something new entirely is something from childhood. And I'm th- you know, I think about all of these really big budget blockbusters and franchises that have been incredibly successful. And they all are so rooted in the things that we thought were cool in childhood. Dinosaurs, <laughs> superheroes, spaceships. I mean, all of these things are just so fundamental. And it's like James Cameron is playing with a big toy box, the most expensive toy box of all time. Yeah. The other thing, Kevin, you're reminding me of is um, Cameron is hired to direct the sequel to Piranha. So James Cameron has a particular talent for sequels, which Avatar is, right? So he comes, he has to do Piranha 2, the second of what's already kind of a schlocky uh, set of films that's designed to kind of capitalize on Jaws. Then he was hired to direct Aliens, the sequel to the first Alien movie, which he was not connected to, I don't think. And then, of course, he directed both Terminator 1 and Terminator 2, but Terminator 2 is a uh, Terminator 1 was successful too, was a huge blockbuster and another level of technical achievement and also popularity. And now Avatar 2, he seems to have um, an impressive career of topping the original movie or coming out with a sequel that that audiences find really satisfying. And that's that in and of itself seems like not everybody can do that, right? That's like a that's a particular talent that he seems to have. I am tempted to tie that back to what I was saying about instrumentality. I feel like he's only willing to direct a sequel if he feels like there's somewhere new to go. One of the common problems with sequels is that they're just kind of the same movie over again. And I think one of the things that he kind of demonstrates, both in Terminator 1 and in Terminator 2, he's got very little patience to rehash anything. So back to Avatar 2, you kind of got to either remember what was going on in the first one or watch it again. He's not going to sit there and go like last time on Avatar, this <laughs> happened and this happened. And we learned that these this is the way that the people plug into the avatars. It's just like, here we go, zip, 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 and we're off. And I think Terminator 2 is exactly the same way. I think the chase, being chased by a Terminator begins roughly five minutes into Terminator 2. The whole idea of like, let's set the stage and see what, you know, let's get familiar with this world. It's like, no, like we got stuff to do here. We got to get chased by a Terminator. Jake Sully's got to be in peril again uh, within five minutes or what are we even trying to do here? I love the idea that um, ex- well, he has to give exposition, right? But it's so hammy the way that exposition is delivered in this movie. Like voiceover narration, sure, but he doesn't care. This information needs to come across and it needs to come across fast. So we have like the video diary of the bad guys, just like the most info dumpy exposition I've ever seen, the voiceover. But it doesn't matter because that's, uh, we don't necessarily care. We're here for something else. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, that's an important skill in a sequel, being able to really quick drop the new viewer in. But also to what you were saying about what new, where where else could he take this? I mean, all of these sequels developed a new technology in Mm -hmm. some way. And so where he's taking it, right, is dependent on him being able to play with a new toy, being able to develop something new, something, uh, some new kind of visual effect. I'm thinking especially of like Robert Patrick, you know, and the melting, you know, which Mm -hmm. was very, the morphing technology was cutting edge. 
So yeah, a sequel definitely works if you have something new to show people that they've never seen. So getting back to Avatar 2, what is the technological advance over the original Avatar or just what other movies are doing? Uh, before we get into just the plot and the story and the film itself, what, what was technologically accomplished in this film um, that's now new in cinema? So I looked at, uh, at a bunch of articles about the behind the scenes work on this thing, and it's insane. So they all of those actors were swimming underwater that whole time. I guess that if I had yeah. known that all this, the, those actors were holding their breath for six and seven minutes at a time, including Kate Winslet, who held her breath underwater for seven minutes and 14 seconds. I'm sorry, what? I guess that if I had realized that all of that, that performance capture was happening underwater, I think I would have been even more impressed, honestly. Wait a minute. What? Yeah. They actually, I didn't, seven minutes? Yes, I thought it was six minutes and 50 seconds. It's actually past seven. Seven minutes and 14 seconds, Kate Winslet held her breath. So all of these actors, I mean, what you're saying is like entirely computer animated. Like this is an animated movie, right? The fact that all of them are in this ginormous tank and they're being filmed underwater yeah. and all of the performance capture and motion capture is happening underwater and they're all swimming around each other um, in this giant tank. It is bananas. So the very fact that they spent all of this time and effort figuring out how to work out the logistical issues of performance and motion capture underwater, that alone was why this thing was in production since 2017. All right. So let's get into this movie. I'll just start off by asking you both, is it a good movie? Did you enjoy watching it? You want to go first, Carrie? Uh, no, you go first. Okay. I am full of appreciation for this movie. Like, um, I think it's it has flaws. I don't think it's a perfect film. But one thing that I was struck by watching it is how James Cameron is not afraid of feelings. That's one thing that I would say to the success of it. If we're talking about just like his last three movies, which I think are Titanic, Avatar, and Avatar 2, Carrie talked a little bit about a roller coaster. And I think that like there is like a visceral roller coaster, but there's also like a real emotional roller coaster. He's not afraid of the big feelings, you know? And so he's fairly unique among big filmmakers because he understands stakes. In order for us to like really love watching the whale destroy that boat at the end, we need to see that boat kill a mama whale in a really brutal way. I appreciate him as a director because he knows that, that that's necessary. Like in order for me to be emotionally invested in this movie that he's made in this world that he's created, we got to go to some sad and dark places. And so he's making these action movies, but it's action undergirded by intense emotion. Like it's kind of also just, it's about parents and their kids and the feelings of kids, you know, about their siblings and about their parents and the feelings of the parents about the kids. He's not afraid to spell it out for people. It's not necessarily sophisticated or like super nuanced on a storytelling level. I mean, he's taking emotion into account so that we have an emotional experience when we're watching his movie. And I think that's more rare today than it probably was 10 years ago and 20 years ago and 30 years ago. So I was feeling really appreciative of like, he's showing us how it's done, actually. Like he doesn't have to be the artsiest or the, the most subtle filmmaker in the world, but he's like, okay, big stakes, 
emotional uh, grounding in family and cool robots and creatures and explosions. He's better than most anybody else at this than than anybody that I can think of. Yeah, one of the points, Kevin, you're making is that um, this seems like something that all filmmakers or all storytellers should know, but it doesn't feel like everyone has the same skill for it or it understands the importance of just set, it, set up and payoff, right? Mm-hmm. Cameron really understands that. I feel like when you say, Shani, like the basics of setup and payoff, the basics of stakes, mm-hmm. I feel like it's one thing I'm fighting a monster right now. And it's another thing like that monster is trying to eat my kid. Right. It's still the same fight. You know, you're still filming the same fight. But if you spend 10 minutes saying, I love my kid, then suddenly like, oh, now I care if you win against the monster that's trying to eat your kid. Well, I was going to say, and it's not subtle. I mean, we were joking while we were leaving the theater. Gee, do you think this movie was about family togetherness? (laughs) I'm not sure. I feel like, I don't know. It's not subtle, but it has to be, right? So to be a movie that needs to be aimed at a fully international audience, this movie needs to make more than $2 billion. It needs to really kill it just everywhere. It needs to be truly universal. And so, you know, we need to not get too specific. We need to talk about the feelings that everyone understands and everyone can get behind. Carrie, the, the point you're making, I think, it helps me understand something about Cameron, is he's making a movie that needs to be understood by almost every audience in the world, literally the mm-hmm. entire world. So it can't be this kind of nuanced dialogue where you have to be able to kind of read between the lines and understand the subtle motivation. It has to be sort of straightforwardly plot development. And then this happened, and then this happened, and this happened. And no matter who you are and what language you're watching it, and it has to be crystal clear what the relationships are between the characters. It has to be like a Disney movie, like a child needs to be able to understand it and right. understand what the stakes are. And I think it largely succeeds in that way. Or like the planet Pandora, you know, it's like, uh-huh. it's kind of cool, but it's like, what is, you know, what are the implications? <laughs> Ooh, should we go there? What if we open up this planet to, you know, to mineral extraction? What will happen if we open it up? Right. And Cameron is not a director, I think, who is really into irony. Like when I heard in the first Avatar movie that the the driving thing the military is, is trying to do is get this resource on obtainium. I thought he named it that like as some sort of statement or ironic. Like it's such a w- peculiar, odd thing to call something. It seemed like the stand-in word while you're writing in order, before you figure out what you're actually going to, what made up thing you're going to call the mineral. And it goes back to this, what we're saying earlier. I think Cameron has a particular gift for knowing what audiences care about and what they don't care about. So it's just the fuel source. It doesn't really matter what it's called even. You know, that's that's really interesting, at, uh, like just the, the comment about irony or like his lack of irony. And yeah. I think that like if there's like one thing that he's demonstrated is is superfluous, it's like any sense of irony at all. Yeah. It makes me think of, you know, like if you go back and watch Terminator 2, it has plenty of cringy lines in it. Even some of the, the ones that have become really kind of iconic, like hasta la vista, baby. It's like... Right. That's stupid. Like, that's a dumb thing for a Terminator to say. And yet, you know, it's like, like, it's kind of endearing for its total lack of gives a fuck, you know, like, right. it's just like, he's such a pre cringe director. Mm-hmm. And he has enough power that he, he doesn't have to cringe ever again. And so it's like, he can give us cringy material and just be like, 
deal with it. You know, like, mm-hmm. like, I don't care whether you think it's, it's like clever or not because he's uninvested in anybody thinking that he's clever. Johnny, I, I loved what you were saying too, about there's kind of these ideas that there are these lines that he just, he doesn't care. <laughs> he expects that audiences will just kind of skip over them if it doesn't work for you. But there's also these other moments that you have to invest, like you have to be willing to just jump right over those holes in order to um, immerse yourself in this world. And he knows most people are going to be willing to do that. And for me, a couple of them were the idea at the beginning of the movie where Jake says something like, well, I learned how to speak Navi. So it's basically English to me. (laughs) Right. So now everything's in English. And then the second moment was when the whale got subtitled. When the whale got subtitled, <laughs> I broke into hysterics in the theater. I thought that yes. was the funniest thing. And I understand, but like I immediately after that understood that it has to work that way for the plot. But it was still just the funniest thing that I had ever heard. But the whale thing, I that really, I found so odd. There were a couple of scenes where you see things from the whale's point of view. Or when characters are talking to the whale they're kind of like gesturing with their hands as if like the whale knows like the kind of sign language they're using and the movie gives you the impression the whale can understand it seems so unnecessary to me to have a shot from the whale's perspective watching the people it just every time that happened i thought it was so odd and unnecessary and i don't know why it was happening that feels very intentional to me that we're going to actually see through the whale's eyes and like that was not just a choice, but like that was like a, a series of choices of like, all right, well, here's here's another shot where we are the whale. And the fact that the whale is, is kind of the big, I don't know, the emotional fulcrum of the whole movie in a way. Right. Mm-hmm. That feels like a very um, meaningful choice that was made at some point. I was going to say, and it goes back to what we're talking about with stakes, Kevin, like in order for us to really understand the stakes here, we have to bestow personhood upon the whale. And a point of view shot does that. We are being, we are identifying in that moment with the whale. We are the whale. And so that, that helps with establishing those really, really clear stakes. I think. Uh Since we're on the whale thing, there's the sequence feels like a 15 minute sequence of like a whale hunt. Mm-hmm. The whole movie just becomes like, it, it feels like right in the middle, the, all, the whole story stops. And then you just watch like what, what looks like a, a National Geographic style, how to kill a space whale. And he just kept building how horrifying the torture of this animal was. Uh, it's quite an intense scene of like watching a, like a like a hunt and torture of an animal. Well, and it's a military op. Yes. So the other thing that I remember specifically about it is the um, efficiency of it. Red team, blue team, you're in the water now. Uh, there was all of these specific devices that were designed for these specific things. And so the whole operation felt very lived in. And that was what made, made it really even worse. This yeah. idea that they had done this a million times already. They have this down to a science. Don't worry. This always happens. This is the thing that we do when this happens. It was all so clinical, but but like a military operation. And I think that it was a little um, critical in that respect. Mm-hmm. And James Cameron may be speaking to um, some of the you know previous things, which he's been really good at, which is to show operations like this, you know. 
but yeah, I think that that made it even more upsetting, this idea that it's done with great efficiency and it's done with great skill. And that was earned somehow through experience. Right. I think in some ways that's like the emotional centerpiece of the whole film, you know, and if James Cameron has kind of become somewhat of an activist, if there's one thing he's invested in, it's the ocean. I've read something and I can't confirm this, but I think that that sequence is like, that's not unlike how uh, whales are hunted in our worlds. Right. And so I think that there's kind of, to what you were saying, Carrie, like almost like a documentary approach to it. It's horrifying, but it's also fascinating. And like, that makes it worse. But I think that it's all about ultimately the shot where our favorite whale beats the shit out of that boat. Oh yeah. Right. You don't get the just kind of like juicy satisfaction of watching that whale flop around Mm -hmm. without having gone through that scene. Right. That whole scene is the setup for the payoff of these people are going to get what they deserve. And the more that whale is tortured and the more clinically horrible the military are, the more the audience is primed to enjoy the payoff. Yeah. You know, why do we go see an action movie? For that moment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so there's a lot, there, there are a series of kind of emotional peaks in this movie and some are around like family and et cetera. But the action movie emotional peak of the entire thing, I feel like is when that whale mm-hmm. flies in the air and crashes down on that boat. And it's like, Heck yeah! if you're going to pay your $12 and sit there for three hours with your, you know, uncomfortable 3D goggles on, it's like, that's that 30 seconds is what you came for, you know, and that's where you are like getting your full action movie money's worth. He knows how to give you your, the bang for your buck um, Mm -hmm. in a way that very few directors working today do without going like as low as we go in that whaling sequence. We don't get to go as high as we go in that battle sequence. Well, and I was just going to say too, that it's importantly established earlier on, these whales don't fight back, right? right. And the fact that this whale fights back—it's <laughs> like a—it's such—it's such classic action trope stuff. Like this is the one who's different. This is the one who's going to change everything. Right. He knows how to make audiences cheer. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a couple of criticisms I wanted to ask you both about. I, one of the things about this movie that made me not love it as much as I wanted to is. A lot of Avatar 2 felt like it just repeated Avatar 1, right? It's another story of the same exact character, Jake Sully, who has to be accepted by a tribe. And for like the the middle hour of the movie, much of it is spent him trying to be accepted and their family not being accepted. And that's just the same exact plot, literally the same plot of the last one. And then him having to act in a heroic way to kind of win over this other tribe. It's now the Marines are back and they want like whale brains because they keep you alive forever. And it's just like another generic reason to explain why these people are there. That doesn't really matter and has nothing to do with the story at all. No one is using that material to say to, to um, keep stay alive forever, which is what the material is used for. It just felt like like point for point, character for character. They were the same plot points the characters wanted to accomplish the same thing he's literally fighting the exact same enemy the the uh the marine who died in the first movie what's his name Karich, Korich? Quaritch. court he dies in avatar one and then they just immediately bring him back in avatar two by like dropping him into an avatar body and 
in the end of Avatar 2, he doesn't die. But I thought, even if he died, what difference does it make? You've just showed you can keep bringing him back. There's a way to end this. So, Kevin, talk about that. Yeah, well, I don't have a fully formed idea to share with you. But what comes up for me is um, so many of, of James Cameron's movies have to do with something relentless, like right. something that is relentlessly, you know, and, and there's something very existential about that. There is something coming to kill you, whether it's an alien or a Terminator or your boat is sinking. I think potentially the most existentially interesting part of this this Avatar thing that's emerging is that they can just keep like that um, courage, yeah. courage. They can just send him back in every movie. Like you kill him and then you got to kill him again and then you got to kill him again. And which makes me wonder if there's five movies here. Are we in a bigger arc where like they have to go back to earth at some point, but if they're just going to keep sending more guys after this guy, then at what point does something, does he realize that he can't run away? Movie one ends with him in charge of the forest Navi. Right. Movie two, he runs away and he has a new home. Maybe that's what's going on here is that like he's pursued and he fights he's pursued and he runs he's pursued and he fights like how do we raise the stakes from here kevin i love the idea that the 10 foot blue people are going to go to earth yeah um just like you know the jurassic park movies eventually the dinosaurs need to be on the mainland like looking (laughs) in kids bedroom windows you know but i have a far more superficial reason why this is such a samey movie and that is that these are the things that 3d does best Hmm. 3d does flying really really well 3d does the exploration of new worlds new terrain uh, just really really well and so part of what we're there is for the nature photography like these long shots where we're just hanging with the whales where we're with kiri and she's just like going through all of these underwater things looking at all the weird little fishies that's what 3d does best and Mm -hmm. we're immersed in that world and so we want an excuse to be able to immerse ourselves in a, a new but adjacent world. Like, give me something that hits the same notes that it hit before, but make it different enough so that I have a slightly new experience. Kevin, you said this before when you even, even went to go watch the movie. You said, I just would like to go to a different world for three hours. <laughs> and that is exactly what we're doing here. And that's its appeal. So, yeah, we're going back to the same place. We're going to learn to ride weird creatures. They're a little bit different this time, but we got to learn to ride them again. All that is just giving us what we want. And this, right. 3D, this 3D spectacle thrives on that experience of newness. The other criticism I wanted to ask you about the Avatar movies is um, both have been criticized for their portrayal of indigenous and, and native peoples and that they reinforce these racist tropes that a lot of movies that have um, indigenous tribes in, right? They're, they're, they're naked and they're simple people who are spiritually connected to the earth and to uh, their tribe, but they're, they're anti-intellectual um, and anti-technology. And then there's a white savior who comes along who you know rescues these people. Uh, both Avatar movies cover a lot of that same ground that have been criticized for their portrayal of tribal people, indigenous people, um, that doesn't seem to be slowing down Avatar, right? I wouldn't say this is like the wokest movie, but uh, and there is criticism on Twitter. There are indigenous tribes who are boycotting the movie, but 
it's not like that's centered to the conversation of this movie. Like I think it would be if they weren't blue, right? If these were, if Kate Winslet was doing her indigenous African accent in a movie, I don't know that that would play like the way she can do it when she's blue. I think, uh, Blue is a very specific color when it comes to this type of conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, it's so specifically to me, like has no reference in our world, you know, right. it's nobody's skin tone. And I don't think that that excuses the movie from any of those concerns, but um, you know, I think a lot of like, if you talk about dances with wolves or anything like that, it's um, it's presenting somebody's idea of what it was like to be an indigenous person that has potentially little to no relation to to the actual lived experience historically mm-hmm. of of those people, and so this in in some ways is is more purely like a projection of James Cameron's like idealized people at one with nature that doesn't have to pretend to relate to any historical truth. So, so yeah. So I think like archetypally there's the idea of technology and how it corrupts humans and how everyone, everyone from the technological human world is kind of like fallen. It's like an original sin thing. Mm -hmm. And then there's this contrast with this kind of Rousseau kind of like idea of like the purity of nature And so that's all going on in James Cameron's head. Like he's smart enough to not try to tie it to a tribe or a moment in history. It's like, no, this is the future and they're aliens. Yeah, we can criticize his portrayal of this alien race. But I think that he making them blue was maybe an obvious, but also like it's the only color they can be uh, and not draw the, the full firestorm down. Yeah. I love this. You mentioned Rousseau too, because it um, reminded me that this, <laughs> this movie made me think of fairies more than the first one, especially huh. because of that scene where Kiri is like underwater and she like hooks like the <laughs> butterfly fish up to her back. And like, she's literally like flitting around like a fairy. And so I, you know, the idea of fairies is being in touch with nature and fairies is having pointed ears and all, but on a more serious subject, yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot to be said about the appropriation of a lot of elements of indigenous cultures across the uh, across the world for this purpose. And uh, there's nothing that I can say to excuse that. But there's something there's something to say about the color blue, <laughs> right? And uh, about the fact that it's so clearly meant to be removed from our reality on Earth. That I mean, that's it's that's its giant excuse um, or the excuse that the movie posits even as it's appropriating religion, culture, and lots of different forms, rites of passage. I feel like all of, it's all just kind of in a blender at this point. Like, Mm -hmm. um, you know, characters have different accents, but there's no real consistency to who's got what accent. And, um, you know, like there's, they're, they're wearing beads, but like, you know, which culture that wears beads are we like stealing from here? Like, I feel like it, it's it been so kind of um, distilled. The moms are moms and the dads are dads and maybe warriors, the spacey girl and the good son. And, and it's like everything has gone even kind of more simple than any cultural markers or any kind of identifiable. It's not identified. Maybe it's maybe but like look at their hairstyles. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, but they're all kind of different, right? Like it's true. There's the the spiky haired kid and the the curly haired girl and the whether he's successful at this, I don't know. But I feel like he's he's trying to dodge that by just kind of putting it all in a blender. And then the the smoothie that comes out is maybe problematic in some vague ways, but it's not specific, you know, there's no that's I don't know about that character's accent, but is that just like Kate Winslet? Like it's some version of her accent, or is it like some kind of I personally just had to let it go at some point. I'm like, yeah. like, all right, this is the we're in a we're in a smoothie here of yeah. culture. And it's 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 into connection with nature, and that's kind of as specific as it wants to get. I mean, as a white person watching this movie though, I know that I'm in no place to talk about this. You know, yeah. this is not this is um I, I don't I don't have have the authority to say anything about this movie in that respect in any kind of detail. One other technical thing, this maybe brings the conversation back to where we started. We talked about sort of Cameron's, the thing that he's done technologically. One thing we didn't talk about that I think might actually uh, reveal something about the future of cinema is he has Sigourney Weaver, who I'm going to look up her age. 71. That's what I thought. I didn't want to be wrong. (laughs) Yes. So he has 73, according to Google. She's 73. She was 71 when they were shooting. Oh, uh-huh. yes. So he has, uh, at the time of shooting, 71-year-old Sigourney Weaver playing a 14-year-old girl in a convincing way, right? In a way that um, if you didn't know it was Sigourney Weaver, I think you could easily imagine it was p- played by a 14-year-old girl because the other teenagers are played by people in their teens or 20s. Yeah. Um, this seems like something really potentially interesting that you could have actors – because of the technology that Cameron's working with, this motion capture, it might free up actors to do sort of more theatrical or more experimental kinds of roles where they can be people who are very different from who they are. Mm-hmm. One of the the previews yes. that uh, came before Avatar 2 was um, the new Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. That's exactly what I was going to say, too. It has some old Harrison Ford but it definitely has some percentage of digitally youthified uh, Harrison Ford in it. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. That creeps me out. I didn't actually know it was Sigourney Weaver. I, I tried to stay as far as possible away from anything about Avatar 2 before going to see it. If she was playing young Sigourney Weaver, I think I would have a problem. It, it would bother me. Mm-hmm. But But for her to play an alien teen Sigourney Weaver... I, I just didn't know, which I guess means that she pulled it off. Right. And that's why it seems to me to to be at a different level than some of the other examples you're thinking of or that you described, where you have an actor playing the younger version of that actor. A younger Harrison Ford is kind of like, I guess it's somewhat different, but Star Wars tried twice to portray a character, uh, a, a Carrie Fisher. They needed a, a young Carrie Fisher uh, who looked like she did in A New Hope. And so that's bringing an actress back from the the dead, but she's supposed to look like she did in the first Star Wars movie from the 70s. They did the same thing with Peter Cushing. And both of those cases, I find them uh, uncanny and a little creepy. But I said this when we watched this trailer, and I'll say it again. I can't wait for young Harrison Ford. I'm super psyched for young Harrison Ford. I am the target audience for this nonsense. (laughs) 
I will concede, Kevin, that there's something really dystopian about the idea that the actors we have now are just the actors that we're going to have forever. <laughs> and they're never going to retire. And even when they're dead, they're still going to be our movie stars. And we're just stuck with Tom Cruise forever. <laughs> there's something really dystopian about that. I, I hear you. It's like being undead, you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's being the walking dead, like trapped, not unlike this uh, Marine sergeant guy is stuck. He's just going to have to keep going back and trying to kill Sully again and again and again and again and again in new bodies until he succeeds or who knows what happens. But uh, these actors, it's like, you're still Indiana Jones. You still, you're still Indiana Jones. You have to be Indiana Jones again. We need you for Indiana Jones. Trapped. Forever. Can't ever retire. Well, uh, Carrie Elza and uh, Kevin Obsatz, uh, The Way of Water has no beginning and no end, but sadly podcasts do. I learned a ton from this conversation. It was super fun to talk to you both. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was so much fun. You bet. You bet. Let's do it again. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Cure for Curiosity. And thanks again to Carrie Elza and Kevin Obsatz from UWSP for talking to me about James Cameron and Avatar. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. It helps new people find us. And join us on Facebook and Instagram at No Cure for Curiosity Podcast to tell us what your favorite James Cameron film is. Our theme song was written by UWSP music student Derek Carden, and our logo is by artist and graphic designer Ryan Drymiller. You can see links to more of their work in the show notes to our podcast. My New Year's resolution is to produce a lot more podcast episodes this year, so I'll see you in about a month with more curiosity. I'm a friend of Sarah Connor. I was told that she's here. Could I see her, please? No, can't see her. She's making a statement. Where is she? Look, it may take a while. I want to wait. There's a bench over there. I'll be back. This podcast is brought to you by University College at University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point. Our mission is to provide coordinated, intentional, and inclusive services and opportunities through our core values of connecting, supporting, collaborating, and engaging. Discover your purpose and visit UW-Stevens Point at www.uwsp.edu.